Welcome to another episode in the Search for Racial Equity series, a global forum offering an in-depth study and dialogue of racial equity and justice. We amplify the most authentic and powerful voices of our time in the racial justice movement while using our global platform to create safe spaces for the most important and timely discussions. As the world continues to fight for racial justice, many of us wonder the same thing. How can we make a real, lasting difference? Meaningful change often begins with meaningful conversation. To contribute to that dialogue and our commitment to racial equity and inclusion, Google has launched a weekly series on our Talks at Google YouTube channel and here in podcast form that amplifies some of the most authentic and influential voices of our time and this global movement. The Search for Racial Equity series hosts authentic, open discussions that reckon with the structural and systemic racism Black people have experienced over generations. To find the video of this talk and all others from the series, please visit g.co slash talks at Google slash racial equity. In this episode, we hear from BAFTA and MOBO award-winning hip-hop artist, writer and poet and historian Akala. He's a record label owner and social entrepreneur who has a unique style combining rap, rock, and electro-punk with fierce lyrical storytelling. Author of the book Natives, Race, and Class in the Ruins of Empire, Akala is well-versed in providing race and class analysis of a variety of historical eras in contemporary British society. Moderated by Googler Dr. Kamal Bob, this eye-opening conversation will explore the ways historical narratives are created and maintained, how Akala's own life experiences growing up in London were shaped by these narratives, and how we can leverage the interconnectedness of the African diaspora to build solidarity and empower communities around the world. My name is Kamal Bob. I am the Global Lead for Diversity Strategy and Research at Google. Thank you for joining us for this episode of The Search for Racial Equity. Today, I have the privilege of speaking with Akala. He is the UK-based award-winning hip-hop artist. He's the author of Natives, Race and Class in the Ruins of Empire. He's a historian. He's a scholar of the people. He's a truth teller. And from what I can see, he's a freestyle wizard. Akala, it's a pleasure to have you with us. Thank you, sir. Pleasure, pleasure to be here. Pleasure to be here. Thank you. Thank you so much. So first, uh, if we would, just by virtue of introduction, uh, we are on opposite sides of the Atlantic. I understand that you're in the UK. Tell us a little bit about who you are, how you ended up being there, and you know, something about yourself. Absolutely. So my dad's family is from Jamaica. Um, he moved here, or my, rather my grandparents moved to the UK as part of what is now called the Windrush Generation. So basically, uh, the end of the war, in a way, actually, we won't go straight into the Britain-America comparison, but there is one even here. If you imagine that, you know, Britain did its racial slavery outside of Britain, so primarily in the Caribbean, um, and similar to the movement of black Americans from the South to the industrial North, you have a movement in Britain of uh, migrant labor from the former slave states of the Caribbean to the industrial metropolis of London, Birmingham, Manchester, Bristol. Um, at the end of World War II. So my grandparents were part of that migration. Um, my dad was born here. My mother's family are Highland Scots on one side and English on the other side, which brings its own religious and ethnic historical complications. So my maternal ancestors, in, they are the indigenous people of Britain, if you like. Their first language is not English, they speak Gaelic. Um, but yeah, I grew up in London primarily with my dad's side of the family, even though I was raised by my mum, because in the 1980s at that time, um, 
lots of white families, even underclass white families, which is which is what my mum's family is, a poorer white family, were not very happy, to, let's say, to say the least, for their daughters in particular to fall in love with, with black men. Um, and so my mum pretty much didn't really have any contact with her family from uh, when she got with my dad, uh, very little. And I ironically was adopted basically by my Jamaican grandmother and my Jamaican Guyanese godfather's family. So I grew up ironically in a very solidly Caribbean, militantly pro-education, sort of a mix of Garveyite and Walter Rodney, um, even though very working class, uncles in prison, not so well off, uh, dad was a bricklayer, so on and so forth, lots of the cliches of, of being in the hood, even though I wasn't physically in the hood, it, the way public housing works in the UK, you can sort of hit the lottery and get a decent house that you can't really afford to be in, you can't really afford to always heat and keep the electric on, um, but it's not, in, it's not in the projects, right? So I was one of those kids that was in the projects, even though socioeconomically um, we were in that class. So that's sort of a little bit of my uh, uh, race and class background. I was economically poor, but culturally rich, I like to put it. My stepdad was the stage manager of London's equivalent to the Apollo, um, a place called the Hackney Empire. I went to a special Pan-African Saturday school. And so I had lots of positive, specifically black cultural inputs uh, that are part of why I think I'm here speaking to you today. I appreciate that. So as we go into the dialogue later, you and I have several intersecting experiences in our lives, except on opposite sides of the Atlantic. What I would like to do, though, as you know, just to begin, uh, the United States at the moment, part of the reason that we're having this dialogue in the first place is that we're in kind of an American uprising. The, the confluence of the COVID uh, uh, pandemic and the killing of George Floyd has led to a racial and social upheaval, uh, the likes of which we haven't seen certainly in our generation. But we're also in some ways in a bubble. Uh, we're here in the United States, our news is generated here, our views are scaffolded here. And so we're listening to each other talking about a narrative that we to greater or lesser degrees understand. I would like your point of view, you're not here, you're, you're looking at us from abroad. Uh, Say a little bit about your interpretation or uh, what you what you see and how this is playing out for you. Well, there's a few different things. Firstly, the influence of American culture outside of America is probably even bigger than Americans realize. And probably even bigger, Black American culture specifically, ironically, has been a, a boon for American soft power. It's one of the great ironies that Black American dissidents even, Muhammad Ali, Malcolm X, these people are... I remember I did an interview a few years ago, and this is not to, to insult the brother, but I, I did an interview on American television a few years ago. And I was asked how I knew who Malcolm X was. And I couldn't even describe to the interviewer, who was, a, who was a black brother as well, what a ridiculous question that was to ask a black person from Britain of my age. But, and it wasn't even his fault. It's just, it would be as silly as asking someone from Harlem who Malcolm X was. That's how well-known Malcolm X is in the UK. If you, if you go to any Caribbean food shop or barber shop in Britain, Malcolm X is on the wall, Muhammad Ali is on the wall, Martin Luther King is on the wall, next to Bob Marley and Marcus Garvey. So Black Britain in particular, because for English-speaking Caribbeans in particular, because we've all got family in New York, we've all got family in Miami, because that migration of Caribbeans, English-speaking Caribbeans to Britain was then paralleled by a migration of English-speaking Caribbeans to New York, Miami, and Toronto. So we've all, every Jamaican has cousins in, in those places. So... Caribbean American culture and black American culture, black British culture in a way is an amalgam of black American culture and something unique to hear because obviously we've got a massive West African population too. Um, and so we experience 
or feel that we experience black American culture as something that we're sort of a secondhand part of. And it's been like that for as long as I've been alive. Like, even though it wasn't always reciprocated, it's only now with the rise of YouTube and all this sort of stuff that black, it feels like black America has noticed we're even here and started to have a conversation back, right? And part of the reason for that, ironically, is because the mainstream sort of uh, British liberal creative gatekeepers used to use black American culture as a proxy for black British culture. So, for example, when I began my career, if you were trying to get on the radio as a musician, you'd be told, oh, well, you can't get on the radio, Buster Rhymes is on the radio this week. You can't get on the radio, P. Diddy's on the radio this week. So, ironically, Britain, and Britain, even in Black History Month here, until recently, we used to teach the civil rights movement in America because it was a way of Britain avoiding the discomfort of its, its own closest parallel to a civil rights movement, which is what we had in the 1980s here. It wasn't a civil rights movement in that way because Britain didn't practice apartheid domestically. It exported apartheid everywhere else in the world. But ironically, here in the UK, there was never a time when black people couldn't vote. Black people were voting in British elections since 1780. Um, there was never formal segregation, though there were attempts at a color bar. Um, so there were, there were still massive similarities to the United States. But Britain did all of its segregation, formal segregation abroad. Um, and so the level of knowledge of lots of British people of American culture and black British people of black American culture may often surprise black Americans because that has been our proxy growing up. We've grown up on In Living Colour. We've, grow, we've grown up on Arsenio Hall. We've grown up on so many of the, culture, the Cosby show, etc. cetera, um, because we didn't have our own versions of those until now. Um, really, we had a, a couple in the 1980s, but generally speaking, the black presence in Britain culturally was American because it made the British establishment much more comfortable to talk about Muhammad Ali than to talk about Michael X, or to talk about Rosa Parks instead yeah. of talking about Claudia Jones, um, to talk about the uh, Alabama church bombing rather than talking about the New Cross fire. That made Britain much more comfortable. So bringing us up to the present moment, um, there's been massive protests here, I'm not sure if you're aware, really, really huge protests in solidarity with Black Lives Matter um, uh, and a whole sort of reckoning with Britain's own culture because it's confusing, right? The truth is we have problems with police brutality here, absolutely. I, I would implore any uh, Americans watching this, a great film by a director called Ken Farrow called Injustice. Um, it was a film the British police tried to have banned. I, I would recommend you watch that. Um, but it is an old film and the truth is Police brutality here is, is bad, but it's bad for a European social democracy. It isn't any, anything like the scale of the problem you have in America. The confusion this causes is British people then say, oh, but it's not like America here. Um, why are they protesting? As if we shouldn't, A, protest just in solidarity with black Americans full stop anyway, as if that weren't a good enough reason. There are protests in Britain all the time to do with issues that happen in foreign countries. Um, but the ignorance of the British public about the extent of the police brutality that has happened here, um, or the way in which the black community has been policed on assumptions developed in America. So people in Britain will say, oh, but it's not like America here. And in a way, they're right. The relationship between race and classes is very, very different. Black Londoners, for example, are much more successful on average than uh, the poor whites in the North of England. So the former industrial belt of the North of England is almost, is overwhelmingly white. And, and that is the poorest region of the country. West education attainment, they live, like we got projects here where there's not a black person inside, where all the same problems exist, drugs, gangs, so on and so forth. Ironically, despite the fact that we're now at a time in British history where British West Africans, who are the majority of the black population, actually, who are on free school meals, which we call welfare, what you would call welfare, we call free school meals. 
they do better in school than similarly poor white children. The British media still pumps this idea of black on black violence, right? Which is the idea that we imported from America, this thing. Uh, David Cameron, one of the British prime ministers uh, a few years ago, he brought the LA gangbuster to London, right? What message was he trying to send to the British public? A couple of years ago, the entire British press ran the headline, London is now more violent than New York. London was more violent than New York for like two weeks. That year, London was the eighth most, had the eighth highest murder rate of British cities. Right? So even though the majority of the black population is in London, the, the highest murder rate that year was Greater Manchester, Glasgow had a higher murder rate, Belfast had a higher murder rate, Liverpool had a higher murder rate. And these are white youths, white boys in the hood, right? There's hoods here where there's no black people at all. That has not stopped the British establishment repeating some of the racial cliches deliberately borrowed from America. So there's this weird thing where even though the history is so different, we are migrants from Africa and the Caribbean, we have majority black nations to go back to in a way, the black American situation is unique because obviously slavery was on American soil. America has been wrestling with that, uh, its own racial demography, its own history, the clash between its values and its democracy since 1865, or its professed democracy. Um, whereas in a way, British Caribbeans can sort of say, all right, well, I've had enough. I'm going to go back to Nigeria, or I'm going to go back to Ghana, or I'm going to go back to Jamaica. And for all the problems those countries have, which are mammoth in their own right, the primary problem in most of those countries is class, even though Jamaica, we have a colorist system and so on and so forth. Um, but to not meander on too much with, a, with, a, with an answer, we knew this moment was coming in America because we've been following America so closely. We've been following America. We, we, we knew about Rodney King when it happened. OJ was huge news here when it happened. All of these events we've been following, especially those of us who are interested in such things, the video after video after video, Tamir Rice, so on and so forth. Um, and so we knew that sooner or later, something would be the match that struck the tinder. And it so happened that it was this particular killing of George Floyd, rest in peace. Um, but it hasn't surprised us because we've, I feel we've had a certain finger on the pulse of American politics for probably most of the post-war period because of what the British government would call the special relationship. There's a part of what you said about the... Um just that Caribbean experience. So for example, I have a poster of Muhammad Ali over my shoulder. I got Rast Daniel Hartman, the baby Rast over the other shoulder and Malcolm X to my left. <laughs> so you described this perfectly. Uh, but the other part that you made is that point that you made is that uh, black Americans, in particular, I think Americans generally probably be surprised about how much black Britons know about the US. Where in the, in the educational infrastructure do you think we have a responsibility to learn about the diaspora and who is doing what and where. I think that there's a fair amount of disconnect. And let me just throw one other thing in there and I want you to, to go on about this a bit. In the introduction, you said that you went to this Pan-African and Saturday school. Yeah. So for example, my, my family is all from Ghana and we, I had a similar thing. So we had these lessons on the weekend. And what, what I'm interested in is, what do you think those kinds of educations are protecting you from? And then to my first question, what is it that we really have the responsibility to learn? Um, two things in there. I wouldn't want to give the impression that black Brits are somehow more open-minded or more worldly, though we'd like to believe we are. The reality is we generally know nothing about the experience of black French people, and they're just across the pond, right? So part of this is just the laziness of language. Um, and in a way, the experience of black French people is more similar to our own in that the French had a global uh, empire. They had colonies in the Caribbean and Africa. And the migrants from their colonies in the Caribbean and Africa have gone to France. And in fact, there's no question that the situation for black people in France is much worse than it is for black people in Britain. I say that without the slightest hesitation. 
the, the segregation in France is, is unbelievable and the lack of access uh, to capital, to power, to career, to all of the things that improve human life. I mean, you go to the projects in France and it's, it's night and day because even the, the geography of most of Britain's major cities, the projects are in the center of the city. So Brixton is right in the center of the city. To the major arts institutions, as many working class black families do and go and access free arts from Brixton. You can't do that in France. The Banilou is, is banished from the city, right? The, the, the French projects are way out in what they call the summer. Um, but most of us know very little about the experience of black French people. So we know about black Americans, not just because we're so open-minded, but because of what I've said, because we have literal black American cousins in New York, Miami, and obviously in Canada, which is a separate issue. Um, but also because of the global power of American culture because of the American empire. And obviously being the second seat of the American empire, as we are in Britain, um, American culture in, in many ways has a greater presence, not just black American culture, but American culture full stop, than even British culture in, in many ways. And so a lot of it is commendable because we've made an effort to learn in a sense, but part of it is just laziness of language and the reality of our demographic relationship with the United States. Um, in terms of the Black Saturday schools, I honestly never knew that there were people that thought being black was about being a gangster or being bad. And I went through that period like as a teenager, but I never found any of that out until I was a teenager because my images of what black culture meant up until about the age of 13 when I stopped going to Black Saturday school were Marcus Garvey, Malcolm X, Martin Luther King, pre-colonial Africa, I knew who Mansa Musa was. Like, so I always had this idea that racist people were stupid. And actually, because in my particular case, my mother's white family are, are not a hugely well-educated family. None of her brothers went to, to college, what we would call university, you guys would call college. She only went as an adult in later life. And the class relationship in Britain means actually most working class white folks of her generation didn't go to college. That's a very new development here, right? So it's, again, the relationship between race and class is complicated. And so the, the side of my heritage where the culture was coming from was the black side. The side where the theater was coming from, theater with an F or theater, as proper posh people would pronounce it in England, was my father's side of the family. The only side I really had contact with was my dad's side of the family. And my mum was in some sense welcomed into that Caribbean uh, culture and that Caribbean way of doing things. And so what Caribbean, what Pan-African Saturday School inoculated me from was internalizing any of the nonsense that blackness meant a lot of the negative things that the mainstream media and, and more broadly white society was trying to pretend it meant. It didn't mean me being a mugger or a gangster or, 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 or selling weed. Those things happen, but those happen in any working class community, in any hood, anywhere in the world. They happen more frequently in Naples in Italy, which is a much more violent city than London, than they do in London, despite the amount of black people that live in London. Um, and so it's only as a teenager I came to internalize some of those negative ideas about what blackness meant. But by then it was too late, I'd already been protected and I was already very sure in myself in a certain way. And so when I was put in special needs class for kids who don't speak English, as you can see, my English is fine. I was born in England. At this point I was reading Lord of the Rings at home, right? And this is a very common experience for black boys who are a little too clever for their own group in the UK. Very, very common to be taken out of school and essentially forcefully held back. Um, when that experience happened to me, it was my Black Saturday school who noticed the change in my behavior, who, who notified my mum, and who eventually happened to be visiting my school to check out one of the other children and pulled me out of that special needs class. So had I had not had this extra educational provision, 
um, I don't know what would have happened to my education. And I don't know how I might have viewed blackness. What we have in the UK is a cliche that I'm going to call the, the mad mix racism, right? It's something we don't talk about much in Britain, where there are people of young men of mixed heritage who are actually more likely to grow up in single parent homes than truly black children. Uh, just as likely to go to prison, do more poorly in school than children of West African her heritage. This has not led to a stigma of mixed race people as a group because they are policed. We've accepted the one drop rule, even though we never had formal segregation, right? In fact, if you look at the three people shot by British police re in recent years, over, over the last decade, so it hasn't been many, um, in terms of shootings, there's been more deaths in custody than that. Shot dead, two of them had one white parent. And they were shot by a section of the British police department that was set up to police black on black crime. So there is this acceptance that a mulatto, quote unquote, is black in, in the British context. But there is this larger conversation about how some young men, well, they have two black parents or one, but particularly young men who are half white, feel the need, and they grew up in majority black neighborhoods, feel the need to prove how black they are by being tougher than all the fully black kids, right? Now, I was lucky. I was a kid who did like fighting in school and I was good at sports. And so I didn't feel that insecurity around my blackness not being masculine enough. But also there was this, having this Pan-African Saturday school where my model of what black masculinity and what it was to be black was, was rooted in thousands of years of African history before I even encountered any of those stereotypes. So I was inoculated against that, is what I would say. And it's been massively important. If you look at the academic outcomes, even in working class neighborhoods of the black kids who go to the black Saturday schools versus the rest of the hood, it's, it's night and day. I took my maths high school exam a year early my cousin, who also went to that school, his dad was in prison growing up. Many of the hood cliches, single parent family, lived on, in the projects. He also took his maths exam a year early. Yeah, so there were massive benefits to going to those schools. One of the things that you mentioned there, Akala, is uh, education as an inoculation. And so there, I would like for you to just explain what you mean. You have you've contextualized it quite well, but if yeah. you could give a bit of an example of the whole idea that we have to be inoculated from something. I just want that to be clearly articulated because we're in a moment here where we're battling with what we memorialize. We have a whole host of uh, contentious discussions about which statues to take down and which history is, is being indoctrinated, et cetera. And your premise there is that there's a certain kind of education that requires us to be inoculated from something. From what and what does inoculation mean? So in, in, the, in the British context, in every, in every society, right, nations have ways they remember themselves. And the ways that they remember themselves are usually very flattering to the people in power, yeah? And, and they neglect the ways in which people with less power have shaped the nation. So for example, in Britain, uh, I was taught in school, as every British child is taught, Britain was the first country in the world to abolish slavery. It did so primarily for moral reasons, and it was primarily because of a man called William Wilberforce who was an elite parliamentarian in Britain. Um, Can you they, repeat his name? We'll just yeah, say William Wilberforce. Got yeah? it. Mm -hmm. What we call the Wilberforce myth in England. Now, it is true there was a larger abolitionist movement in Britain than any other European slaveholding power. It is true that some members of British Parliament fought for the abolition of the slave trade. It isn't true that Britain was the first country in the world to abolish slavery. Uh, revolutionary France abolished slavery before Britain, as did Denmark abolish its slave trade. But the first major slaveholding power to actually abolish slavery was Haiti. And it did so at the cost of 100,000 African lives. Excellent. And it did so in opposition to the British Empire, who tried to crush the Haitian Revolution, and in opposition to the French Empire. And the British even helped the French 
attempt to reconquer Haiti and reinstall slavery after they had failed. So clearly it wasn't entirely moral and it wasn't out of a love for Africans that the British government abolished slavery. British slave masters were paid compensation. The bonds uh, that that compensation was paid back through, British taxpayers didn't finish paying off those bonds until 2015. Yeah, so when we talk about reparations, British Caribbean taxpayers paid reparations to British slave masters, essentially, or paid off part of that debt via the government bonds until 2015. Um, if you're a young black kid growing up in Britain and you believe the entire sum total of black people's contribution to the human story is being enslaved and then getting set free by a benevolent British parliamentarian, and then maybe, you know, Martin Luther King and the Civil Rights Movement, no disrespect to the greatness of Dr. King, but he would reject the idea that he was the sum total of black people's historical contribution out of hand. So if you're a black kid growing up with that, and furthermore, if you're a non-black person growing up with the belief that that is black people's sum total of contribution, how can you believe there's any worth in, in black human beings? When we think of India, we immediately think, even if we're not directly aware of Indian history, of thousands of years of written history, of, of, of the history of Hinduism and Sikhism and civilizations that have existed in India, and that filters down into the stereotype of Indian computer scientists today and doctors and lawyers. And so in a British context, we are now kind of peak absurdity where, again, British West African kids are doing comparatively well in school. And still there is this general narrative that black kids, undifferentiated by class, undifferentiated by parental background, undifferentiated by whether or not their children are, their, whether their parents are West African university educated civil servants or British Jamaican bricklayers, as my dad is, just black kids are trouble. Even in a country where the majority of the poor people are white, even in a country where the vast majority of the murders are white on white, even in a country where the majority of the prison population is white. So even demographically, we're not in even vaguely the same situation as, as the US um, because there just aren't enough black people. Obviously, black people in the US are still a minority, but they're a much bigger minority than black people in Britain. Um, and so I was inoculated against a lot of that, what can only be described as anti-African propaganda, a lot of the sort of Tarzan image of Africa. Um, I was aware, and I still think, Africa's having a major blip in a way that you could call the last couple of centuries of African history, maybe Africa's dark ages. And, he, and even in that, there have been civilizations and histories and, and a lot more victories and success stories than you traditionally believe. But I was always able to ground from a very young age, slavery and colonialism in history that went all back to Shango Bono or Anapta Playa, which was an astronomical observatory, or to ancient Egypt and Nubia. And, and, and so it just, it, the, I, it, it historically grounded me in a way that I was certain I, was, I wasn't inferior. And what was being promoted on British television um, was basically nonsense. And so that was what I needed to be inoculated against. But I would actually argue that non-black people need to be inoculated against this nonsense too, because I, ironically, now that black Londoners are becoming really successful, there is a massive black middle class growing, along with still problems with gangs and street stuff and all of that. But there's like a what I would like to call the Americanization of black London where the black folks who've made it are doing very, very well. That wasn't the case before. The black folks who haven't made it, it's getting even worse, right? And so as this chasm opens up, lots of people find the success of black London as a reason to be resentful because they've internalized, again, this idea that black people's station in life is at the bottom. And so seeing black Londoners make it has led in the British press, right across the press from left to right, uh, this propaganda that they call the left behind white working class. So the idea is that poor whites are being left behind, not because they're poor, not because of a classism that predates the black presence in Britain by a thousand years, or at least the Windrush black presence in Britain by a thousand years, but the evidence that black 
white, poor whites are being left behind is not the chasm between poor whites and, and wealthy white people. It's the much smaller gap between poor whites and working class black folk who are doing that little bit better in school now. But when you look at who working class black folk in Britain are, particularly West Africans, we're essentially comparing the children of university educated West African civil servants who happen to have ended up in the hood because of discrimination, even though they've got degrees in engineering or accountancy or whatever it is from back in Ghana and Nigeria, to working class white English folks and working class black English folks, which is a phrase we never use because working class black English folks, like my family's grandparents came from the Caribbean, they're doing just as badly in school as poor white kids. So there is no great mystery here. The children of university educated West Africans, shock horror, are doing a little bit better. And that is now being turned into racial resentment and race baiting by much of the British press who believe that black people's station in life is permanently at the bottom. What you've articulated there beautifully is I think one of the reasons that the Black Lives Matter movement is so significant because there's a whole educational infrastructure that requires an attendant part to it to make sure that we really understand what that fulfillment means. There's, there's, a, there's a parallel dynamic going on here where as you know, perhaps, that there, a lot of the major universities at the moment are considering not using the SATs, the Scholastic Aptitude Test for Entrance. And for decades, Black people have been saying that that test reveals the structural inequity of the schools that Black people go to. However, it's used as a kind of meritocratic device to say that all things being equal, you should be able to pass this test, and that determines your ability to get into the fulfillment of post-secondary education. So for years, black people have been saying this thing reveals those inequities. All of a sudden, uh, we have Asian students who are supreme in their performance on the SATs. And for the first time, major U.S. institutions are saying, well, we'll not consider the SATs for entrance. The argument is that it's diversity. But black people are saying, well, we've been saying that this is a problem all along. And so now, one of the things that seems to be part of exactly what you're saying is that when white students are revealed to be vulnerable, then we have to make structural adjustments to make sure that they're protected. And it seems like it falls in exactly to what you're saying. So I want you for now to expose a little bit about meritocracy. What does that really mean in the context of education? And beyond that, I want to ask you some things about STEM education, because I understand you have some interest there as well. Well, the funny part about it in Britain is the British class system is so entrenched don't make the mistake of thinking that the British elite care about poor white kids. I mean, they, they, they dislike poor whites in a way that is almost ethnic. And if you know British history, you'll know that the ruling elite of Britain, they come from France. And a lot of the white working class, as we call them in Britain, come from Ireland, who Britain colonised, right? So there is this semi-ethnic hatred that nobody likes to talk about publicly because they're all supposed to be white. Um, and there is a way in which white people in the north of England are spoken about and dialogued about um, as, you know, basically they're savages. We have shows here, Jeremy Kyle show and all these other shows, uh, Benefit Street that depict poor whites in a way that is reminiscent of some of the sort of propaganda against black Americans in the sort of crack era, right? The only time the British establishment cares about poor whites is when it's to pit them against black people. So they don't actually care about them as a group. They don't, they're not interested in a meritocratic education where poor kids in general have genuinely the same quality of education as wealthy people. What they're really saying to poor whites is, that's the problem over there, that Kwame, Ade and Olu and Gurpreet um, are doing better in school than you. Yeah, that's the problem. The problem isn't centuries of classism in Britain, it's that these brown people who don't have the right to be here have come here and done better than you. The great irony of this is more immigrants came to Britain after World War II from Poland, Italy, Ireland and Germany 
than from India and the Caribbean. So what the British government did was try to integrate immigrants, as happened in the United States, and give white immigrants access to citizenship, presumption of, of, of indigeneity, access to jobs, in a way that wasn't done for non-white immigrants. And it was even worse in a way in the British case because Britain was not carrying exactly the same racial baggage domestically that America was because the slavery was done elsewhere. And I don't say that to be romantic. The British government actually did a number of studies in the post-war period that showed the British public was actually much more ambiguous in its attitudes to Commonwealth migration of non-white Commonwealth citizens than the British government wanted everyone to believe. And when you think about it, this isn't that difficult to understand. The entire British Commonwealth had just fought the Nazis together. Restricting Commonwealth migration on the basis of race, when we'd all just fought the Nazis, India gave the largest volunteer army in human history to that war, just sounded a little bit Nazi. So the public was quite divided. The government decided to go in favor of the idea that only white people could really be citizens of Britain and put in legislation quietly, they didn't say this publicly, that put those mechanisms into place. In the education system, coming back to your point about the SATs, the two universities in Britain, Bristol and Warwick University, did a study um, about 10 years ago where they looked at data from every single secondary school in Britain. And what they found was that if children were judged just by their performance in their SATs, about 20, 30% more black children would actually be entered for higher tier GCSE every year. And obviously being in a higher tier GCSE improves what grade you can get, what grade you're likely to get, what college you're likely to go to, and then what university you're likely to go to. They also found that of all of the ethnic groups in Britain, that British schools underestimated black children, regardless of class, vis-a-vis -vis their actual measured performance in standardized testing. The underestimation of black children was the largest of any ethnic group. But again, things were not so simple because Indian and Chinese students were the only group that British schools assumed to be even cleverer than they actually were. They are the highest performing ethnic groups even here. And ironically, white children from poorer areas were also underestimated, but just by nowhere near the degree that black children were. Like, so for here, for example, Americans probably wouldn't hear it, but the way a white person talks here is strongly indicative of their class background. And there are massive assumptions that come with not speaking like this. BBC accent. Now, all British accents may sound like that kind of BBC accent to Americans, but the difference in the way people perceive you if you pronounce theater with an F like I did, or if you pronounce it theater, just that alone is a huge class indication in, in Britain. And so it's no surprise to people who know British history that even poor white kids are underestimated vis-a-vis -vis their measured intelligence. And so the, the class race dynamics here are slightly different, yet the British government and the race baiters in the British white and press and much of the British education system still wants to import and impose a US-based frames of reference and US-based dynamics about black people and to marginalize black people and then feel shocked when we feel affinity with black Americans, even though we're dialogued about in the exact same uh, language that is used to demonize black Americans, despite the fact that the situation is indeed quite different in lots of ways. I mean, just violence alone, no Western European country has a problem with violence in anything like the scale of the United States does. White Americans get killed more frequently than black British people do because America as a whole is so much more violent. Um, and so there are massive differences and big similarities, and yet that hasn't stopped much of the British press dialoguing about black people and even the government as if we were the same group of people, black Americans, with the same experience. And I don't say that to say that there would be anything wrong with being a black American. I say it to say that out of respect for the extremity of what black Americans have actually experienced, we didn't have spectacle lynching. We didn't have formal segregation. We didn't have to riot just for the right to take a, 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 a part of my language. I was going to swear there. Um, we, didn't, we didn't have to basically fight for a century 
for the right to go to the same toilets as white people. We didn't have those things. Yeah, we had no blacks, no dogs, no Irish in hotels. We had police brutality. We had Bristol bus boycott. We had lots of things that were similar. But there was not a formal, you can't come in here, backed by the state because you're black. You cannot vote because you're black. You can be, and there will be no consequence. Britain did all that outside of Britain. Let me let me ask you this. I what you're describing there, uh, it makes me think about what American exceptionalism means. When you frame the idea that you didn't have to fight for a century to go to the same toilet as a white person, yeah. but our our internal national narrative is about American exceptionalism yeah. and what that means for the purveyance of democracy around the world and against all the values of, in, of individualism and righteousness and meritocratic values, etc. But what you've described, looking at it from abroad, it sounds totally counter to that. I mean, I'm not naive about what this means, but when you yeah. describe it in such stark terms, respond for me uh, a bit about the relationship between American exceptionalism, and this is a bit broad, yeah. and, and empire. We don't use the empire word in the United States, but we do use exceptionalism. Yeah, well, because the American empire isn't a formal empire. The, the British went around the world and said, Let, this territory is ours, plant a British flag, make them British citizens or, or slaves before that or indentured servants before that. Um, make people formally British. This is a formally British territory. Or as I put it to people, Jamaica was in a political union with England before Britain existed. So in other words, Jamaica was in a political union with England before England was in a political union with Scotland. That's how long Britain has had a relationship with Jamaica. Describing Jamaicans as foreigners is absurd, but that's what we do, right? Even though Jamaicans have been part of the British labor force since the middle of the 17th century. So British exceptionalism predated American exceptionalism. Much of the, and none of this is even unique to British and, Ameri and America in a way. The French told themselves the same thing. I'm sure the Japanese empire told itself the same thing. Every empire has some self-righteous justification why they're different from every empire that went before. They bring in civilization and the light and the beauty of their culture. Nobody colonizes anybody else because they love them. And a great way to think about this, I always say to British people, in the north of the country where it's very poor, lots of people who are literally living on food banks, yeah? So poor that they live on like, massive food banks, they go to get food, right? M millions of people in the north of this country. Victorian diseases like rickets are coming back. So real, real poverty. How do, I always say to people, how do you think the people of the north of England would respond if Japan, South Korea, and Taiwan said, well, look, we've got higher IQs than you have. We've got a higher GDP per capita. We're more technologically advanced than you are. We're more educated than you are. We're more democratic. We've got a greater uh, balance of share of wealth. We should colonize the north of England and expose and impose Japanese rule on the north of England. Do you think people in the north of England would say, hey, great, as long as you build us some bullet trains, that's absolutely fine. Of course they wouldn't. They wouldn't want to be colonized by the Japanese, no matter how fast the trains the Japanese build up. So the British understand they don't want for themselves colonialism, even if they fall behind other groups of people relatively, as they have already fallen behind the Japanese. Similarly, American exceptionalism says, you know, Anglo-America's right to rule the world, and to hell with what everybody else thinks. And actually, us ruling you is good for you, because your children, you are not qualified to make your own decisions. And so, ironically, America's in this position where Unlike Britain, where Britain was proud of its empire, planted its flag and said, yes, we have an empire. Many Americans discover for the first time when somebody tells them, you guys are an empire, right? You've you got a thousand military bases around the world. That's an empire. You've got many countries whose entire economies are organized in the service of American capitalism um, and in the service of American institutions and, and our subservience, the American government, the World Bank, the IMF, to American corporations. I'm aware very much of the irony of having this 
conversation on an American corporate platform, but I don't hold my tongue. I say what, what I think to be, to be the truth. Um, and so there is, there is the wider dialogue when we're talking about racism in America of America's history as an empire and as an upholder of Western power and Western values um, outside. And, and listen, the, the crazy thing part about it is you talk to lots of my family back in Jamaica or to my cousins and friends' families in Nigeria and Ghana, and they're very pro-US. So there's even this weird thing where people in the colonies are like, yeah, but we watch American TV. We grew up in American culture. We, My Jamaican grandmother came to Britain and put a picture of Queen Elizabeth and white Jesus on the wall next to each other, as did almost every Caribbean of her generation. And so in a, in a sense, what colonialism often does is, and America has done, is cut just enough slack. There are just enough successful black people in America, just enough black Americans with just enough money, just enough access, just enough privilege, that it keeps some stability within, within the country and it looks democratic. If you just, if you do apartheid South Africa, you just cut everyone out of the economy, that there's no stability in that. And so the sort of being totally pragmatic and cynical, this sort of governance of, look, you know, divide people, let enough of them succeed. And so then the ones that succeed can say that ones that haven't succeeded are just lazy. And that's the reason there are no structural reasons why poor black folk. And you've got this movement among black American conservatives, you know, just pull up your pants. And, you know, there's no structural reasons for black American poverty. It's just, you know, black folk are lazy, basically. Um, so there's a lot of that where people have completely different views of America, almost justifiably. If you're a middle-class black American and you look around the world and you think, where in the world would I be better off than here? It's an entirely reasonable uh, and honest, actually, position to say, mm, well, would I be better off in Nigeria? Would I be better off in India? Would I be better off in Colombia? Would I be better off in Japan, South Korea? Mm, America's terrible, but it better the devil you know kind of thing. And a similar thing is happening with black people in Britain where there are now enough becoming enough, it's one of the great contradictions of Anglo-American politics, where in some sense, the countries are kind of democratic and, and they do make enough trade-offs, at least to democratic demands to, to stave off revolution, if you like, or to stave off the accusation that they are former apartheid countries anymore. You go across the river to France, across the pond to France, and it always amazes me at the level of segregation in France. And it's not even spoken about. It's, it's as if France is a democracy. And France is a more socialist country economically than Britain. But it has not had the impact we would hope socialism would have had for black French people. Um, and so there is that contradiction with, within Anglo-American politics that, um, that there is at least some semblance of democratic accountability underneath this layer of brutality and, and quasi-fascism and now a police state that you're living in in America, which means that people have completely different views of the countries based on their experience. There's, a, there's an important point there, several that you've made, one of which is I, I live in Atlanta, as you know, and Atlanta's uh, arguably the second most segregated city in America by race. So all of the things of lived experience correlate with that segregation, as you would imagine. Of course, there's a subset of people who are, uh, you know, making it uh, as I am, for example. But it does lead to this other point about the, the the relationship to the education that we get to understanding those structures. So what you've just articulated to me, as I was saying at the beginning, and I, I wasn't just talking off the top of my head about scholar of the people, means that we understand what these other structures are. But in the corporate setting, that's the case now, at least in the United States, and I'm sure it's the case everywhere, uh, the coefficient of value on people who have technical education is through the roof. It's as if nothing else matters. 
And so there, what we're doing now is we've essentially built up an infrastructure to train people to be technical workers at the expense of educating them to be full and complete citizens. And so in that sense, where do you see the relationship between the kind of education and the, the inoculation and basically the weaponry of defense and, uh, and articulation that you have relative to STEM education? And let me also say, just for listeners who may not know, that STEM, STEM is not a word. It's science, technology, engineering, mathematics. So respond to that for me. Yeah, I'm in favor of STEAM education as an artist. Steam you know, arts, that's yeah. a, a in there. I yeah, mean, yeah. I can't remember what the number is, but I think the arts are something like 90 billion as a sector in Britain, something ridiculous like that. So this idea that arts are just like a sort of add-on is just, I mean, we're talking about one of the biggest industries in the world when you think of the publishing industry, sure. the industry, the theater industry, the film industry. I mean, these are mammoth, mammoth industries. Um, in my humble opinion, the whole thing is just education, but that said, I quite agree. Go ahead. Don't get me wrong. Listen, you, you need to build a bridge. You need some mathematics, right? You right. <laughs> You need this computer to work, you need some mathematics. I'm not completely an idealist that's like, education should just be anything. There are quantifiable measures of proficiency in certain subjects, even in art. There's a reason. There are technical reasons why Biggie is a better MC than XYZ person. There are tangible reasons why Tupac made better songs than XYZ person. It's not like, there are reasons, right? Many reasons that can be measured in music theory, that can be measured in emotional connection, that can be measured in where you, where Biggie placed his syllables um, on the bar. Do you know what I mean? If you really want to start talking about flow and writing it out in music theory, not like just an accident that so many people think certain people are the greatest rappers of all time. Um, but that's an aside, right? So I've been running for a number of years a company called the Hip Hop Shakespeare Company. Um, I've done lots of separate, which is a music theater arts uh, production and education company. I was working in schools. We've done work in about 20 countries around the world. I've also done lots of independent work as a historian um, and essentially a social worker, though I wouldn't see it as that, in, in prisons, in what we call PRUs, which are pupil referral units, in young offenders institutes, and teaching all around the world. I've, I've worked in schools in the slums in Zimbabwe, in the slums in Jamaica, in Brazil, in North and South Sudan. The level of educational disenfranchisement that I've seen in Britain and America is actually like nowhere else in the world. It's also, it's almost like children become teenagers here in working class neighborhoods. And the sort of autopilot, dumb yourself down and accept your station in life. Sort of, it's almost like we have an autopilot class hierarchy where working class kids in England, they become almost embarrassed by being clever. will play down how clever they are. It's no longer cool to be smart. For all of primary school, it's cool to be smart. And it's almost like the teacher's perceptions of them, the society's perceptions of them, the, the propaganda that you have a certain station in life. This is pronounced for black boys as well, but here it is something that affects children of various different ethnicities in that same social strata. It's just even more pronounced for black boys. And it becomes no longer cool to even aspire to attain the kind of education that would allow you to compete in the future workplace. And it's only when brothers come out of jail, which I'm experiencing with a lot of brothers in my generation, brothers come out of jail in their early 30s and now want to learn the things they could have learned in high school, but nobody pushed them hard enough, or they didn't have Black Saturday school like I did, or they didn't have the right community workers, or they didn't have the right family set up, or they got arrested too early, or the school just assumed, ah, oh, he's a black kid from a council estate, therefore he's not going to succeed anyway, or all of the above at once. Um, and yet, in many places where life is demonstrably much more difficult, I taught at a school in Kingston called Jonestown Boys, it's on the border of Rima and Denham Town, which is the ghetto, it's Trenchtown, right? It's, there's, tanks outside the school, you know, that kind of stuff. 
The first kid I asked, what do you want to be when you're older? He said to me, marine biologist, sir. You're you an 11-year-old boy from Trenchtown. Marine biologist, the next you, lawyer, the next you, judge. The next you, wanted to be, half the kids wanted to be in the army because the army was protecting the neighborhood and so on. And that's not to romanticize Jamaica because, of course, the Jamaican ghetto has all the same problems that ghettos everywhere, everywhere else in the world has. But there is not this idea, A, that to be black is to, to not be clever. But there is a little bit of that colorism there. They used to say anything too black, young would. As you'll know from the Caribbean, there is massive colorism. But there is still this sense that even a child from the ghetto can rise and succeed educationally, and there is value in education. And I think there's something about the sort of celebrity culture of Britain and the United States that ironically only cares about educating the very top tier of the society. And it's almost like to hell with everyone else. We don't care about educational meritocracy. We don't care if people in the lower social stratas have anything to contribute particularly. And so there's this weird sort of um, contradiction of having what are technically the best universities in the world, Oxford, Cambridge, Yale, Harvard, Stanford, etc., and having massive, massive educational disenfranchisement at the same time. Whereas a country like Finland has the smallest gap between its best and poorest performing pupils, doesn't set and tier, set and tier by our ability, they don't start school till seven, I believe. So all sorts of things that are completely contradictory to the way we'd be told education should work in Britain or the United States are working very effectively in, in Finland and across Scandinavia. And even in poorer countries in Britain, you look at the educational outcomes of middle-class Jamaicans in Jamaica, middle-class Guyanese people in Guyana, middle-class Nigerians in Nigeria, middle-class Ghanaians in Ghana, their education achievements are so high that when they move to America, it creates, as you know, this, this whole contradiction where for black immigrants, university educated black immigrants from back home, getting into Harvard and Yale and Stanford is, is normal, is, is even, right? And so black Americans have had to fight through a century of segregation, Jim Crow, classism, etc. And then a, a university educated kid from the University of the West Indies is in the top 5% of all the universities in the world. Just for context for people who are watching this, there are 2 million people in Jamaica. There are a billion people in India. There are only two universities in India that rank higher than the University of the West Indies. So I want you to think about the stereotypes of Indian people and the stereotypes of Jamaican people and then measure that against that educational outcome. And I've been doing, working on a paper for a while, looking at the educational outcomes of, of the top 30 or 40 schools in Jamaica versus British Jamaican kids. And it's embarrassing, the gap. Um, and so black immigrants, there's this whole conversation about class and black immigrants to America who have a level of access that the average black American doesn't because of, they're a different social class and because they're coming with a different education, a different understanding of what blackness is, a different set of social pressures. And some black immigrants, unfortunately, become quite stuck up about their position rather than show solidarity with the black American experience. And it goes both ways. There's ignorance in both ways. How do you, how do you, how do you that's a delicate, that's a delicate relationship. So you're right. So for me, for example, I mean, I, like you said, you're personifying uh, who I am. So I, like, I got a PhD from Georgia Tech. I went to University of California at Berkeley. And in my family, there was no, you know, resounding celebration, just kind of expected that that's what you do. But in the American context, I'm put up as this black American boy who was miraculously able to do these phenomenal things when all I really did was just do my homework. I studied as I was supposed to, and I, I achieved as you would expect one to. But there is this dynamic that you allude to where now there's a group, I think they're called American Descendants of African Slaves, ADOS, I think is what it's called. And it's, I think, pitting Black Americans against Black immigrants. Because one of the things that we find, as you point out, is that in higher ed institutions, particularly the most selective ones, 
a disproportionate number of the black people are the children of immigrants, the first generation, or they themselves are born abroad. And so the counter argument to affirmative action and all the social pro programs to try to get black students into these elite institutions, the argument is that they're disproportionately benefiting people who have not been themselves subject to the American pressure and oppression in their intellectual pursuits. But now there's this delicate and unspoken dance between Black Americans who have been here since 1619 and the Black Americans who have been here more recently, like me, since the 70s. So help me with how we would negotiate that delicate talk in front of people who would have us both fail. It's very, it's very, it's very sensitive. And that could be a whole nother talk in and of itself, because then also you have the Black immigrants that came in the 1920s that were part of the Harlem Renaissance. You have people who came from post-revolutionary Haiti. Not everyone goes back to the Mayflower. Um, and then you have people like Stoker Carmichael and Malcolm X and others and Marcus Garvey who shed blood alongside and fought alongside and, and, and in Marcus Garvey's case, been the co-founder of the largest black American organization in America. So I don't want to dismiss either the very legitimate concerns of the specific history of black Americans. Um, but I also wouldn't want to gloss over that that history is shared history. And in fact, it would be, in my view, um, Nigeria's development is in the interests of the entire black diaspora. If we just think in a common sense, right, let's just take a random industry, basketball. If I'd have said to you 30 years ago that the best white English cricket players would be playing cricket in India, you would have thought I was crazy. Yet that is the current situation. The best cricket league in the world is in India. If you're a, if you're a great cricket player, you go to India. What are the practical effects just on basketball of Nigeria having an NBA that could play pay even 20% of what the American NBA can? Right? If Nigeria was that developed, Black Americans who can't get coaching jobs, for example, would just say, okay, well, I'll go to Nigeria and I'll co-own a team and I'll coach a team over there if you don't want to treat me properly. So I'm a Pan-Africanist. I believe Pan-African development is in the larger interest of the entire black diaspora, including black Americans. So I, I'm not idealistic about this idea all black people should just stick together and sing Kumbaya on the retreat. Black people have shared interests because of this shared history. Um, and so that's part of the conversation, I would say. Um, I think that it's also important to remember that immigrants in general outperform native-born people. So white immigrants in America are more successful than American white people. White immigrants to Canada are more successful than white Canadians. White immigrants to Australia are more... Chinese immigrants to America are more, are more successful on average than Chinese Americans. Japanese immigrants to America are more successful than Japanese Americans. So immigration itself is self-selective. It's not as if... I mean, if people even looked at what the average salary is in Ghana, and what it costs to get a visa to come to the United States. This is not a random Ghanaians that are coming, right? These are people, these are select people, often genius level qualifications, so on and so forth. That doesn't mean the resentment isn't legitimate, but I think it's also sad that black people are always pitted against one another. As if there's a limited amount of black spaces and other black people's success is my failure because there can only be 10 black people in the club at a time. Um, and how to resolve that? It's not for me to say, I'm not an American. It's, it's a conversation that, Black Americans and black immigrants will have to have and, and figure out. But, but I would argue that there has been a long history of collaboration and middle ground. To give one last example, the founding fathers of Jamaican independence were not, were not Jamaicans in Jamaica. They were Jamaican Americans exposed to black American radicalism in 1920s Harlem. And when they first said Jamaica should be independent from the British, Jamaicans in Jamaica <laughs> thought they were crazy. Now, both the major parties in Jamaica have tried to retroactively claim the credit for Jamaican independence, but actually began with Jamaican-Americans radicalized in America. And so there's a long history of Jamaican-Americans trying to fight in the Ethiopian army when the Italians invaded 
Ethiopia, a long history of Pan-African solidarity that I think speaks to the best political traditions of, of black America and the black diaspora. Because it hasn't been, oh, we just stick together because we're black. You, you didn't get black Americans going to fight in the, in the Biafran war in Nigeria, right? So it's been us sticking together because we're black, but based on certain principles. Yeah, not just, oh, we're black, so we're gonna justify any kind of foul behavior. It's still been what I would call revolutionary black nationalism, which still has certain basic human principles, which is why a man like Muhammad Ali could sacrifice potentially his life, almost his life and his career in solidarity with Vietnamese people, even though he was a staunch black nationalist. And so I would say he represents to me the best political traditions of black America that have inspired the entire world in a way that many black Americans may not even know, not just black people throughout the world. Let's, let's close on the following. I, I appreciate that you raised the point of Jamaicans and their, since you're Jamaican, let me defer to you. So Jamaica's influence on the world. So uh, you mentioned the University of West Indies. Uh, the pro-vice chancellor, Rex Nettleford, is kind of globally famous, at least outside of the United States. Uh, one of his books, um, Inward Stretch, Outward Reach, talks about the way that we have to emerge out of the colonial state. So we began this conversation with the flux of anger and angst that's going on here in the United States and abroad and solidarity and so on but out of which I think this triumphant basic principles of Pan-Africanism and uh, revolutionary, kind of revolutionary freedom tenets comes. Uh, and so if you were to think about the history of contribution, the moment that we're in, and these, the complexities of what we've articulated here, out of that has to spring a well of hope. I mean, I think in part, the complexity itself to me is fuel for what spirit and triumph means. But round it out for us. Where where is our hopeful our hopeful direction? Um, well, I think two things. I think one, there has to be major material change. Yeah, lots of people are trying to pass it off, feel good stuff, liberal cliches. And for the more capitalist leaning people, and I'm not on here acting like I'm you know on a Google platform. I drive a Mercedes. You know, I'm not trying to present myself as Che Guevara necessarily, even though I lean to the left politically. I'm not naive about the reality that I'm a successful independent artist in a market economy. I, I'm no longer in the socioeconomic group that I was when I grew up, so on and so forth. So I'm aware of all of that. And perhaps precisely because of that, I point to Japan, South Korea, and Taiwan in terms of economic solutions. At the end of the war, because of the fear of Chinese communism, the elites of those three countries engaged in unprecedented land reform. In, in other words, the peasants of those countries got their 40 acres in a meal. And, they, and if you look at South Korea in 1961 was twice as poor as Ghana. Today, South Korea has Hyundai and Samsung, right? And that was all state-led and it, part of why, how they became 90% middle-class countries is because of this massive wealth redistribution. So people who are interested in the stability of capitalism even, perhaps look to Japan, South Korea, and Taiwan. Compare them to Indonesia and the Philippines where those policies were not enacted and they have all of the same political problems we have in the Caribbean, where few small families own all the land and all the wealth, and it leads to all of the same inequities and all of the same problems with violence and political instability and so on and so forth. So there has to be major material change. There is no way of getting away from that. The, the history of white welfare in America, um, there's a great book called When Affirmative Action Was White that people should read. There's a great book called The Color of Law that people should read that looks out how the American state deliberately segregated American cities as you speak of. For some of that to be reversed, there needs to be major material change, as there was in Britain after the war. We had this massive thing called the welfare state that created sustainable living standards for Britain's poor, it was a state-led policy. Then under Margaret Thatcher, you had a sort of a right-wing version of that in a way where you could buy your council house, you could buy your social house. But this became a major source of wealth for 
um, working class people. So there needs to be some kind of real tangible material change so that even if there's going to be a broadly speaking capitalist economy, everybody has some capital within which to compete within the capitalist economy. You can't have a functioning capitalist economy when a huge section of the population have no capital. So I would say that if there's going to be any hope, it has to be, including corporations like this, meaningful, measurable, sustainable material change to these communities that we're talking about. Yeah, Because me and you are people who, wherever we've come from, we're the people that are, whether we like it or not, sort of the talented tenth. I don't see myself that way, and I don't see myself as the person in charge and the HNIC, but I'm conscious that whether we like it or not, in, in a certain way, that's the status. In terms of hope, um, I am just, you know, there was a time in my life where I was a very negative person emotionally. I was, I drank too much. I was around a certain amount of violence. My friends were around a certain amount of violence. They were, they were doing some very, very bad things. And I was on the periphery of that. Um, and I had such a negative mentality at that time. And I worked so hard to come out of that mentality. But more importantly than my own exceptionalism, I was given the tools by this community education. You know, when I decided basically to not be in the streets, I had all this background that I could draw. So I don't want to act like it was just my own exceptionalism. It wasn't. But because of that process, I just refused to, to be negative, no matter what's going on. Like, and I've had a really tough year personally, away from all the political stuff that's going on, away from the fact that all of my summer gigs as a musician are cancelled and there's all these other problems, right? I already had a tough year personally, family-wise, but I just believe that you cannot be miserable enough to bring happiness into anyone else's life. And I believe in, in a way, in revolutionary happiness. If you're around people constantly lifting them up, constantly pulling them up, you come to me with an idea and I give you 50 reasons why it's a great idea and why you should chase your dreams, rather than be that person in your life who's just always like, no, you can't succeed because. You For me, understanding institutionalized racism is not at all about giving black people reasons to fail. It's about saying, this is the way the chessboard's set, big man. And if you understand the way the chessboard's set, when you get put in special needs classes, I did, you can get pulled out quickly. If you don't even understand the way the chessboard's set, you can't compete. So in no way is this about saying, oh, it's so awful being black. You know, it's so terrible. I believe firmly in black joy. I was in Ghana last year. We'll close on, close on this perhaps. I was in Ghana last year for a year of return. Now, whatever I think of the politics of it is a different question. But the sheer joy of the entire black diaspora, black Americans, Jamaicans, Caribbeans, Nigerians, Ghanaians, black Brits, anyone who was there will tell you, like it was genuine black love and not just, oh, racism exists, so we need to come together. No, genuine, like it takes a village to raise a child, Ubuntu, I am because we are and because we are, therefore I am. And so I genuinely believe that sort of, without being cliche or idealistic to the political problems in Africa, but that sort of African village mentality, that sharing mentality, that joy mentality, that irrational joy, even in the face of hardship, is where I draw my hope from, even though I know there's absolutely no guarantee whatsoever that things are going to get better. Things could get much, much worse very, very quickly and very, very easily. But I just try my hardest to not be taken out of that space, even in the face of, of challenges. Akala, you are a wellspring of information. Uh, you kind of personify the idea of revolutionary happiness. I love it. Yeah, thank, thank you very, very much for joining us on this search for racial equity. No, it's thank you, brother. It's been a pleasure. Indeed. Thank you. I'm Melanie Parker. Thank you for joining us for the search for racial equity. Let us march on till victory is won.